Today's scripture comes from James chapter 2, verse 10 to 13. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do, not, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Good to see all of you. Happy Memorial Day weekend. I hope you were able to enjoy uh, this week. Was anything eventful this week? Really? The weather was kind of bad, but today is a nice weather. Tomorrow, more rain. So <laughs> without further ado, let's go ahead and pray after the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy, how you are a God who is for us, not against us. Even when we find ourselves in moments where we are against ourselves, we are against you. Nevertheless, your merciful grace is always showering upon us as your beloved children. And so, Lord, as we are recipients of grace and mercy, we pray that we would grow in greater um, holiness, transformation, in such a way that we would live out our calling of being a blessing to this world. Father, we don't want to add to the curse that's already in it. But instead, Lord, we want to push it back and shower this world with the love of God that flows in our hearts and out into the world. Father, would you enable us now to go before you, to sit at your feet, to receive everything that you want us to receive today. And whatever distracting thoughts that may lead us into anxiety, that may lead us to fear, anything that would deafen our hearts to your words, we pray by the power of your spirit that you would banish it away so that we could fully be present now. Oh, God, would you please bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, it goes without saying that uh, there are some interesting people that live in this world, right? There are some interesting people that live in this city. And one particular type of interesting person that I'd like to highlight this afternoon is the grammar Nazi. You guys know who the grammar Nazi is, right? You guys know someone? Maybe you're one, right? Does someone just point at me? I'm not a grammar Nazi, right? (laughs) But you guys know who I'm talking about. You're talking about that person who has this insatiable desire to correct every misspelling, every grammatical error, every improper use of prepositions and phrases and so forth. They just find this need, whether they're reading an email, whether they're just walking down the street and they see a misspoken advertisement on the screen, or or maybe they're just reading something you wrote. Now, normally... Whenever you need to turn in a paper and you have a friend who is good at this, yeah, they're great to be around. But any other time, they're just quite annoying, right? And if by chance you happen to be one of these grammar Nazis, Jesus still loves you, okay? But if by chance you happen to be one of those people and you notice the title of today's message, you might think that you caught me, your beloved pastor, red-handed, like, oh, yes, I see it right there, a proper view of sins, Sins, did you meant to write that extra S at the end, sins? Didn't you really mean to mean a proper view of sin, right? And you're getting ready to just throw out those magical words that elate your soul. You're wrong, Pastor John, right? Well, let me turn it back on you and say, no, you're wrong. You're wrong. How does it feel, huh? (laughs) Actually, I meant to write that. That's not a typo. It is a proper view of sins. (laughs) 
We're continuing our sermon series that we started a few months ago entitled Views of a Healthy Church. And the whole point of this series is to take a look at the crucial matters pertaining to Christian faith and to ask ourselves the question, how would a healthy church view these crucial matters? Because the underlying assumption is how a healthy church view these matters is actually the correct way of viewing it. So far in this series, we looked at a proper view of Jesus, a proper view of the Bible, a proper view of church leadership, a proper view of evangelism, a proper view of repentance. Well, today, we're going to talk about a proper view of sins. Sins, plural. Why? Well, there is a view that's very pervasive right now in our culture that's circulating, and it's even making its way in the church, and it's a view that basically says this, not all sins are bad as other sins. Not all sins are as bad as other sins. Or as one pastor famously put it, not all sins are as sinful as other sins. Now, of course, there is some truth to this statement. There is some truth to the idea that not all sins are as bad as other sins. If by bad you mean not all sins are as equally and immediately destructive as other sins are. Of course, that is true. So, for example, if for some reason you choose to murder someone... The amount of immediate damage you will inflict on that person and their loved ones is much greater than the damage that you would inflict on, say, if you just decided to make a white lie and to lie to them to their face, right? So, yes, of course, that when it comes to immediate damages, yes, some sins are more immediate and more damaging than others. But yet, on the other hand, this idea that some sins are not as bad as other sins is absolutely absurd, and it is wrong. And in today's message, we're going to unpack why that is the case. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon, and they are the following. First, an improper view of sins, okay, why that view is bad, and finally, how to have the right view of sins. An improper view of sins, why that view is bad, and how to have the proper view of sins. Okay, or the right view of sins. Let's jump right in. First, an improper view of sins. Can we have our passage up, please? Let's just leave it up there throughout the whole message until we skip to other passages and other quotes. But let's start off with verse 10 of our passage where the Apostle James says these words, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Now here, James has just made an astounding statement because what he's essentially saying is basically this. Let's say hypothetically that you're capable of obeying all the laws of God. Let's say that possibly you are able to obey all the laws of God except one law. Okay, let's say theoretically that's possible and that's what happened, that you obeyed all the laws of God except one of them, okay? Well, according to James, he says, even though you obeyed most of the laws of God but one, God would still hold you as guilty as a person as if he's committed and disobeyed all the laws of God. That's essentially what he's saying here. Now, you hear that, and some of you are like, wait a minute, Pastor John, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Are you saying that if I obeyed 99% of God's law, but I had 1% of disobedience, of disobeying one particular law, that God is going to hold me responsible as if I disobeyed 100% of his laws? Is that what you're saying? Actually, no, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm really saying is, if you obeyed 99.99% of God's law, and you disobeyed 0.001% of God's law, that single disobedience, that 0.001% of disobedience would make you as if, in the eyes of God, you're guilty of 100% of God's law. Go back to what it says in verse 10. Read it again. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of 
all of it. You see that little word that comes right after one, right? One point. Isn't that weird? What is that word for? Why does he put that word point right after one? Why does he just say that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one? Why does he feel the need to go and precisely say one point? What is the meaning behind that word? Well, it would be good to know that the author of this book, the Apostle James, happens to be the little brother of Jesus. Actually, the half-brother of Jesus. Mary was their mother. And one of the things about James is that he was a devoted follower of his older brother. And just like every young sibling who is devoted to his older brother, James was constantly thinking about ruminating and meditating on the teachings of his older brother, Jesus Christ. And one particular teaching that he was thinking of when he was writing this letter was Matthew chapter 5. Starting in the 17th verse, we read this. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. One very prominent scholar by the name of John Stott uh, reflects on these verses and he says this it is true not all the commandments of god are equally weighty yet even one of the least of these commandments precisely because it is the commandment of god our king is important what is john stott saying he's saying the exact same thing that the apostle james is saying in our passage and that is every single law of god even those laws that on the surface just look so tiny so trivial, so insignificant compared to the other laws that look more like bigger letters, bigger paragraphs, right? And these little laws just look like tiny little periods on, on a page. Even those tiny dot laws are very significant to God. They're very, very important to God to where he expects you to obey them to the same expectation that he expects you to obey those bigger, more obvious laws that he calls us to obey. And this is something that we really need to grasp because the truth of the matter is, folks, if we're really honest with ourselves, there are many things in our life, many particular sins in our life that we don't think is that sinful. There are many things in our life that we know is not right, that is against God's will, and yet we casually dismiss it. We kind of tolerate it as if it's not that big of a deal. Oh, God couldn't really care if I said a little white lie or if I made a little passing glance at a person who I'm not married to. God doesn't really care about those things. I mean, he's not legalistic like that, right? No. God says, every law of mine is significant and important to me to where I expect you to obey it. And yet, we don't see that in the church today. In fact, it's gotten so bad that one very well-known evangelical Christian author by the name of Jerry Bridges, he wrote an entire book on this growing problem. You know what the title of his book is? It's called Respectable Sins, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate. Listen to this quote, which is found in his book. He says this, sin is sin, even those sins that I call the acceptable sins of the saints. Those sins that we tolerate in our lives are serious in God's eyes. Our religious pride, our critical attitudes, our unkind speech about others, our impatience and anger, even our anxiety. All of these are serious in the sight of God. And sad to say, the concept of sin among many conservative Christians have become essentially redefined to cover over only the obvious gross sins of our society. 
The result then is that for many morally upright believers, the awareness of personal sin has effectively disappeared from their conscience. But it has not disappeared from the sight of God. Rather, all sin, both the so-called respectable sins of the saints, which we too often tolerate, and the flagrant sins of society, which we are quick to condemn, are a disregard for the law of God and are reprehensible in his sight. Both deserve the curse of God. Both deserve the curse of God. Now, at this point, some of you are hearing this like, okay, pastor, I hear you making the case and I get what you're saying. Can you give us some examples of these respectable sins that Jerry Bridges and these minimal one-point laws that we disobey that James is referring to? Well, if I was a jerk, I could be like, well, you figure it out for yourselves. Go buy the book and read it for yourselves. Why should I do it for you, right? But I won't do that because that would be a respectable sin I'm committing. And I don't want to commit a sin in front of you in the pulpit. So let me read to you an actual list, a sampling of the kinds of respectable sins that he identifies in his book. Number one, anxiety and frustration. Number two, discontentment. Number three, unthankfulness. Number four, pride or being egotistical. Number five, selfishness. Number six, lack of self-control. Number seven, impatience and irritability. Number eight, anger. Number nine, judgmentalism. Number ten, envy and jealousy. Number eleven, sins of the tongue like gossip, slander, lying, critical speech. And then, of course, there's the standard one that we all tolerate way too often, materialism. Materialism. Now, as some of you are reading this list, you may be thinking to yourself, come on, is James being serious? Is God being serious? Really? Really, if I'm a little bit impatient with my spouse, or if I'm impatient with my brother, or if I'm impatient with my friend in school, if I'm impatient with it, you're saying that I deserve the same level of punishment as a mass murderer? Right? Really? Showing a little lack of self-control. Yeah, so I had an extra piece of pie after dinner, even though I had three other pieces. You're saying that because of that, I'm going to suffer the eternal fires of hell? Right? It's not like I did anything flagrantly wrong. Right? It's not like I raped anyone or, or murdered anyone cold blood. And yet what you're saying is that because I commit these sins and I tolerate them in my life, that I'm so guilty to the point where I deserve that kind of punishment. Pastor, can you help me understand this? How would God, why would God have this kind of rationale? Why would he think this way? It makes no sense. Or does it? I think there's actually a very profound reason why God holds us to high accountability to these so-called respectable sins. And to explain why, let me go to my next point. Why that view is bad. Let's read again verse 11 of our passage where James continues by saying this. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this is a very odd verse. Very, very odd. Why? Think about the context. Think about the whole point that James is trying to teach us here in this small section of Scripture that we're studying. His whole idea is that he's trying to confront us of how we tolerate these little one-point sins, these little violations of these tiny, insignificant laws in our eyes. And yet when he cites some examples of the kinds of laws that we disobey or the kinds of sins we commit, he says it's murder and adultery, right? I don't know about you, but to me, murder and adultery are pretty big deal sins, right? I mean, I would hope, to, I would hope that none of you in here think that murder and adultery are not big deal sins. I would hope that you would you know, think that they're very serious and they're very egregious, right? I hope none of you in here would be like, you know what? 
I think after I get my latte, I'm going to murder somebody today and then go to school. You know, I hope you're not there. Okay, if you are, come see me. But I can't promise I won't call the cops on you, right? But the whole point is, like, these are egregious sins. And yet, James is citing them as examples of the kinds of sins we tolerate. How do you make sense of that? Why is he doing that? Ah, again, remember, this is the younger brother of Jesus Christ, which means he is constantly thinking about his older brother's teachings and doctrines that he taught his disciples when he roamed the earth. And one specific teaching that many Bible scholars think that James is thinking about as he's penning these words in verse 11 is Matthew 5, starting in the 21st verse. Can we have it up there, please? Listen to what Jesus says. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman or man with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into, well, where? Hell. Hell. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying... Even the sins that we obviously know is wrong, evil, egregious, all of these sins always, always first start off as a violation of those little sins that we tolerate so much. A lot of the sins that we would never imagine we would ever do, the sins that we would try to avoid at all costs, are all the product of those tiny little sins that we violate all the time. They are an accumulation of all the little sins that we commit to where we don't even think twice about it. And Jesus and James is warning us, be careful. If you are not vigilant, if you are not wise, if you don't keep an eye on those tiny little insignificant respectable sins that you think are not that bad and so harmless, you're in for a rude awakening because before you know it, they're going to grow, they're going to metastasize and to the point that they're going to be a spiritual threat to you and to those around you. Now, again, some of you are like, oh, come on, pastor, being a little melodramatic here, well, you know, reference to cancer, metastasize, come on, right? Just being a little melodramatic here, a little grim. Hold on to that thought as I read to you this quote from Jerry Bridges again. Listen to what he says. The way cancer operates is a good analogy of the way sin, especially so-called acceptable sins, operates in our lives. Acceptable sins are subtle in the sense that they deceive us or even worse, not even thinking about them at all. Think of such tolerated sins as impatience, pride, resentment, frustration, and self-pity. Do they seem odious and pernicious to you? They really are. To tolerate those sins in our spiritual lives is as dangerous as to tolerate cancer in our bodies. Seemingly small sins can lead to more serious sins. Lustful looks often lead to porn addiction and even adultery. Murder often has its genesis in anger, which grows into bitterness, then to hatred, and then finally to murder. Let me ask you guys this question. Let's say that you go to your doctor for a routine checkup, and the doctor says, you know, overall, you look healthy, you sound healthy, you know, but I found these tiny little cancer cells that are malignant. But you know what? They're so tiny, you could barely notice them, okay? And they haven't 
spread out yet, and they're not growing. So why don't we just leave them alone, you know, until they get bigger and become a real problem, and then I'll take care of it. What would you do with your doctor at that point? You would fire him, right? You would immediately find another doctor who's going to immediately say, let's get those things out of you right now, right? Because you don't want to have these malignant cells growing and growing to where it becomes your death sentence. And James is essentially saying, look, just as you would be vigilant about your physical health, you have to be just as vigilant when it comes to your spiritual health. When you find little sins inside of you, when you find yourself having a propensity to always violate those laws that God says are important, but yet you dismiss them because you think they're just one-point laws that are not significant, you are endangering yourself to spiritual death. That is what James is saying. To what you need to have that kind of vigilance. You need to understand that there is no such thing as a harmless sin. Every kind of sin that's out there, even sins to where you don't see any immediate consequences of, are just as dangerous as those in which you do. There is no such thing as a harmless sin. There is no such thing as a minor sin, a respectable sin. All sin is evil, and all sin will lead to your death. Here's the thing, though. Here's the problem. Even though all of you in here will probably not disagree with what I'm saying, even though in your heart of hearts you know that what I'm saying is actually true, the problem is for most of you, or let's be more honest, for all of us, we don't really believe it. See, the problem for many of us is that instead of going by what we know is true in our head, we always tend to follow what we think is true in our hearts, what we feel to be true. And the fact of the matter is that in our heads, we know that committing these kinds of respectable sins is bad, but in our hearts, it doesn't feel bad, which means our hearts have become callous. Our hearts have become desensitized. They become numb to the point where our consciousness are no longer even pricked or bothered by the fact that we violate God's laws, even these laws that we think aren't laws at all. And so the question is, how do we regain that proper sensitivity to where we regain a a proper view of sins, all sins? The answer leads me to my final point, how to have the right view of sins. Let's read again our passage, verses 12 to 13, where James writes this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here James teaches us how we can regain sensitivity to something that we have lost. How we can regain sensitivity to the laws of God, to where we have a proper view of it. And it all centers on what he says in verse 12, that phrase called the law of liberty. The law of liberty. What in the world is the law of liberty? What does that phrase even mean? It sounds nonsensical. It sounds like a contradiction. Let me ask you guys, when was the last time any law felt liberating to you? Have you guys ever had a moment where a law in our society felt freeing and and exciting and and unrestricting? You know, in North Carolina, there are these highways, four-lane highways, to where you could easily go 80 and not cause any damage or any harm or be in any danger to anybody, right? But yet the speed limit in one county within the state of North Carolina is 55 miles per hour. Like the whole time it's 70 miles per hour, but as soon as you get into this county, it drops down to 50 miles per hour. And there's no reason. Same highway, you're going the same, you know, route. There's no obstruction whatsoever. But as soon as you get into this county, you go from 70, which means everyone's going about 80, to 55, right? That is a restriction when you start driving through that. Does that law 
especially these traffic laws that we have to constantly obey, do those laws feel empowering? Do they feel liberating? Do they feel like you're no longer restricted? No. Our common experience when it comes to laws that we feel so restricted, we feel so confined. And yet James says that it's possible for God to change you in such a way to where you would see his laws as being empowering, as being freeing, as being liberating. Here's the question. What kind of transformation is this? How in the world does God change us in a way to where we would see his laws as no longer being confining and restrictive, but liberating and full of freedom? Well, he tells us with one word in verse 13 that he repeats three times. Do you see it? Mercy, mercy, mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. According to James, when you encounter and experience the mercy of God, you see God's law as no longer being confining, no longer being restrictive, but instead liberating, full of freedom. Here's the question. What exactly does he mean by that? What is mercy? Do you guys know the definition of mercy? The biblical definition of mercy is simply this. Mercy is where God does not give you what you deserve to get from him. One more time. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve to get from him. And what is that? What, does he, what do you deserve to get from him that he doesn't give you? His wrath, his punishment for your sins, right, including your minor sins, your respectable sins, your condemnation in hell for all eternity. He does not give you what you deserve to get. That is mercy. Why is God merciful? So that he can give you what you don't deserve to get from him. That's grace, right? Do you guys know the difference between mercy and grace? People confuse it all the time. They're not the same thing. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve to get from him. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve to get from him. And what does God give you that you don't deserve? He gives you forgiveness of sins. He gives you eternal life. He gives you status as being a co-heir of Jesus. You are a child of God. That means that God loves you as much as he loves his own beloved son, Jesus. You have that status, right? So really, it is this combination of grace and mercy that God gives you through Jesus that allows you to what? To finally love what God loves and hate what God hates. One of the ways that you know that you have received God's mercy and grace is that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. Here's the question. What does God love? Do you guys know what God loves? God loves holiness. God loves righteousness. And he loves the things that get you there, including obeying his law. But conversely, that also means he hates what? He hates the opposite. He hates unholiness. He hates unrighteousness. And he hates the things that lead you there, such as disobeying his law. One of the ways that you know that you have been captured by the grace and mercy of God is that you love what God loves with a passion. And when you love what you love, when you love it to the extent that you do love it, even the littlest things will be the grossest offense, right? For example, let's say you love a pair of shoes, these pair of sneakers. Maybe they're Air Jordans. Maybe they're LeBron sneakers. I don't know. Does LeBron have his own sneakers? I don't even know, right? Let's say you've always wanted to have these brand new sneakers, and you love it. <coughs> you put them on. You buy them. And someone happens to walk by, right? Little kid. Maybe it's a nephew. Maybe it's someone at this church, right? 
little kid just runs up to you and accidentally scuffs your brand new shoes. Just a tiny little scuff. And you look at it like, oh my goodness, right? Such a tiny little thing. And yet it's so offensive. Or let's say someday you guys make enough money and you buy a brand new car, right? And it's a car of your dreams and you love it. And then you end up pulling at the Hanarum in Union Station, right? And some old grandma accidentally nicks it towards like a tiny scratch, just a tiny. Doesn't look tiny, doesn't feel like, oh my goodness. Hasn't happened to me. I don't know why I'm being that specific. Or let's say one day you have a kid and you love your baby, right? And then someone, you know, goes up to him and accidentally sneezes on it. You're like, what are you doing? How dare you? Meanwhile, if it was another kid not related to you, you'd be like, oh, he'll get stronger. It's good for him, right? When you love something so much, it doesn't matter if it's a tiny little infraction, if it's a tiny little scratch, anything, even a tiny little threat to its safety or to its wholeness will upset you, right? God loves his law. He loves it so much. It is a perfection. It is an embodiment of his perfection. So that when you violate it by having a tiny little sin, a little white lie, or maybe looking at a girl too long or looking at a guy too long, right? You think, oh, it's not a big deal. How can you say that when your brand new car with a little nick would be like, you would go crazy. You might even want to murder that, some, that person, right? Do you now understand why these little laws are so important to God? Because the law is perfection. The law is an embodiment of who God is. It's a reflection of his holiness. And God loves his holiness. And he wants to share it with you. And he wants you to live that out because he loves you. And he wants you to love what he loves. And he wants you to hate what he hates. That's what happens when you receive grace and mercy from him. Here's the question. How do you receive grace and mercy from God? How do you receive it? The answer is simple. It's always the same every week. You get the grace and mercy of God by believing in the gospel. What is the gospel? What do I mean that believing in the gospel? Believing in the gospel simply means this. You recognize that God loved you radically, unselfishly, sacrificially, when you hated him with all your heart and wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, God responded to your hatred with such radical love that he became a man, Jesus Christ, and he suffered the full penalty of all your sins, even those little sins that you think are not a big deal. He paid for the full penalty of it, right? Why? So that in grace, you could receive forgiveness, eternal life, and status as a child of God. The way you can be resensitized to sins, to all sins, big sins and little sins, is when you are enraptured by this extravagant, radical, sacrificial love of God in Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel teaches us. And that is the only way that you will feel the weight of even those little sins that to God cut into the heart. It's only through the radical grace and mercy of God's love in Jesus that you're able to see sin for what it is. And you're able to avoid it at all costs, even if it's the tiniest little sins that you think wouldn't be a big deal. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about all this. Listen to what he writes. Quote, The best of men have always been afraid of little sins. The holy martyrs of God have been ready to endure the most terrible torments rather than step so much as one inch aside from the road of truth and righteousness. With their eyes well opened by divine grace, 
They have seen a whole hell slumbering in the most minute sin. Gifted with a microscopic power, their eyes have seen a world of iniquity hidden in a single act or thought or imagination of sin. And hence they have avoided it with horror, have passed by and would have not to do with it. But if the straight road to heaven be through flames, through floods, through death itself, they had sooner go through all these torments than to turn one inch aside to tread an easy and an erroneous path. The only way you're going to feel the weight of sin, all sins, including those tiny sins that you think are not a big deal, is if you have been captured by the radical grace and mercy of God that is found through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the only way you can do that. And so here's my question that I want to challenge you with right now. What sins in your life have you been tolerating? What sins in your life have you been struggling with that you think are not a big deal and maybe you think are not even worth even confessing to God? I'm a little bit shocked sometimes when I come across Facebook posts of people who I know are Christians, you know, and they say quirky things like, just because you can't eat doesn't mean you can't look at the menu. Saw saw that recently. You guys know what that means? (laughs) It's not a reference to, like, food. Yeah, some of you guys know what it means. Go Google it. Well, actually, don't. Don't Google it. It's not a good thing, right? Basically, it says, just because I'm married doesn't mean I can't look over here, look over there, see what's on the menu. Or, or these devout women would say, oh, I just saw Magic Mike, woo! You know, and you're like, wait a minute, aren't you? How can you say this publicly like this? I was like, oh, it's harmless fun. Boys will be boys. Girls will be girls. Really? Is that who God has called you to be? Is that who your God is? I want to take this time to really ask for you to process and consider what God is trying to teach us in this passage. Maybe you're at a point in your life to where you think that you've avoided all the major sins in life. Haven't murdered anyone, haven't stolen, haven't lied. But who of us in here can honestly say that we have not committed some of the sins that Jerry Bridges listed out in his book? I think I've committed all of them this morning. I think I committed them five minutes ago to somebody. All of us have. And my desire for our church, which is really God's desire for this church and every church that he has, is that we would be a blessing to the world principally by the way that we live our life, by the way that we live a godly life, a life of integrity, a life of consistency, a life of honor to where we are above reproach, to where there can be nothing pointed back at us. But the only way we're going to get there is if we first acknowledge that we're not there yet. And so can I invite you guys to just spend a few moments, just spend some time asking for God to shed some light into your soul and to consider where in your life and over what issue in your life that maybe you need to be confronted, where you need to confess, and where you need to acknowledge where you have fallen short. Why don't we spend some time right now in prayer asking for the Spirit to help us to see what we so avoid and not see hardly at all. I invite you now just to spend a few moments in prayer asking for God to illuminate those things to you. Let's pray together.